The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us them, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So the last several weeks, our readings from the Gospel of Matthew have dealt with parables that Christ told during his final week in Jerusalem, right before his crucifixion. So he's just caused a scene in the temple, having done this kind of theatrical outburst of a cleansing of the temple. And the religious, the religious authorities now are seeking to undermine and discredit this backwater preacher who's come up to Jerusalem. All the parables that we've heard over the last few weeks have been part of Christ's challenge to the religious establishment to recognize the moment of God's kingdom coming near. He speaks very sharply with them at these times because of the urgency of the moment. He's saying they can no longer defer their response to God because in Christ coming near, now the way they respond to Christ is the way that they've responded to God's kingdom. Our gospel lesson tonight is lodged right in the heart of Christ's collision with the religious elites. The the text tells us that the Pharisees They got together with the more politically savvy Herodians, and they thought up a pretty textbook scheme to undo Jesus' credibility, get him to take up a side politically. This is still a pretty good way to get religious people to look bad, which is to get them to talk about politics, which is the reason I think Father Stephen has me preaching tonight instead of him. I think, I think the Pharisees and the Herodians would, uh, even if they didn't get the consolation of seeing Christ tricked, they do get the consolation of knowing about all of us who have to come and preach about this text and make fools of ourselves. Politics were controversial then and they're controversial now. No need to tell you that. But in Christ's time, he's speaking to an Israel that is basically an occupied state at this point. Rome had an imperial presence there. And for a people who looked back to the glory days of David's kingdom, this was a morbid and intolerable fact that there was this Roman presence here. Nonetheless, the Jewish people could maintain a share of independence so long as they paid their poll tax to Caesar, the imperial tax that they asked him about. But the rub is this. If you pay the tax to Caesar, then you're acknowledging his authority and conceding some measure of his power But if you don't pay the tax, then you're deemed a rebel and you risk charges of insurrection. So you have to credit Jesus' opponents here with a a pretty fine piece of politicking. 
They say Christ is a truthful teacher. He's one with integrity. He doesn't defer to anyone. I like that. He, he doesn't care about who you are. He'll just say the truth to you, which means he's not somebody who knows how to play the political game very well, at least it seems. So the question's meant to force Jesus into the position of either a political revolutionary who won't pay taxes to Caesar, or into a kind of compromised, weak-willed political irrelevance. He's not really up to anything that important after all. Either way, he ends up alienating probably at least half of his listeners, no matter what he says, and he may even make himself guilty of seditious anti-empire activity. But at some level, you can't blame the Pharisees for wanting to know what he'd have to say about this. Even if it's a tricky question, it's also a real question. He's been announcing a kingdom, after all. He's been presenting himself as the king of this kingdom. I don't have a remarkable sense of political history, but I'm pretty sure most kings do not like to share kingdoms with other kings. So if Christ really is ushering in a new era of salvation for Israel, then it would seem that this should be some kind of goodbye to Caesar. It's, it wouldn't be ridiculous to think that were the case. But Christ's response is characteristically clever and unsettling, and it's one of those things you don't really want to preach on, you just want to leave it as it is, because no, nothing I say is going to do better than the words that he had to say. He asks them for the coin, and they bring it up to him. He says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Some eager know-it-all in the audience says Caesar, and Jesus responds in the famous words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Give to Caesar, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give back to God the things that are God's. At hearing this, the crowd is astonished, and they leave. They basically admit that they've been bested by him, and they're amazed, and so they, they get away. They were expecting some sort of gotcha moment where, okay, he's shown himself, yet it ends up backfiring. Christ reveals himself to be perfectly poised and in control of this situation. He couldn't be manipulated or swept up into their game. They admit to force him into some sort of prepackaged role, either as the revolutionary or spineless defender of the status quo, and yet Christ's words remained wholly his own. Christ is shown here in his lordly freedom. He's one who will not be co-opted. We have this trouble as being people involved, deeply engaged, in the society and culture that we're in, of all our words can be pulled and sucked into these kinds of conventional routes. We, we try to speak for ourselves, but so often the world just ends up speaking through us. Even the times that we try to rebel against the culture that we're a part of, we end up just more showing ourselves to be children of that culture. But this isn't so with Christ. All that Christ did and said arose wholly and absolutely from his Father's will. Never for a moment was he anything other than the perfect expression of God's nature and purpose. He could not be taken in by their agendas. He could not be bent into their patterns of thought. And still, Christ won't be. Have you noticed how frustratingly elusive Jesus is throughout the Gospels? You just, you can't really pin him down. Almost all the summaries, these quick little summaries people try to give of Christ's character, they never, they never measure up to a simple reading of the four Gospels. If you try to picture Jesus as the nice guy, he's going to mess with you because he doesn't quite fit that picture very well. 
Over and over, we just see that Jesus is utterly strange. He's a weird sort of dude. He keeps, you think you have him, and then he's moved off to another area. He just doesn't fit our categories. Our minds are frustrated, and they reel at him. So if you're seeking a comfortable, nicely packaged hero for your life, if you want somebody to present to you the image of of your own system or your plans, Jesus Christ is not the one to go to. There is still a live temptation to call on Christ to just sanctify whatever political positions we already have, whether it be in activism or indifference. But I don't think he'll let us get away with that. If you want Christ as a mere tool for your political agenda, then you're welcome to try it, but you won't end up with the risen and exalted Christ. You'll end up with a piece of your own imagination that's just an exalted portrait of all your own lofty ideals. You'll end up with a really nice version of yourself. Now, the gospel of the kingdom is eminently political, but it's political in ways that I think we're hard-pressed to recognize. Now, what I mean is this. I think we actually have to rethink what it means for us to be political creatures. Aristotle says we're political animals. Christianity, I think, recognizes that, but it recasts it. And I think this is what Christ is up to in his response. He's reframing the question by reframing political life itself, which is, I think, why the the hearers are all surprised by this, is he doesn't just pick a side. He actually puts the whole question into a different light. So he says, yes, there are indeed two kingdoms here. There is God's and there is Caesar's, but they're not in competition quite like you would expect. They're not warring with one another in quite the same way as two earthly kingdoms war with one another. Christ concedes that taxes are to be paid. It's kind of comical. He says it's got the guy's face on it. It probably belongs to him. The concession that he makes of paying is it's at the same time as sort of minimizing or almost belittling of Caesar's importance. That's the comedy of it, is basically how nonchalant he is. The guy's got a thousand little portraits of himself. I don't know why he'd want to keep them. Hand them back to him. It's, it's, it's almost not even like, oh, you ought to pay the taxes. It's like, this guy, it's this guy's weird stuff. Throw it back if he wants it. Jesus isn't overthrowing Caesar's political authority, but he's also not enchanting it. At some level, he seems to even to not be particularly interested or even impressed by it. He doesn't, there's two ways to pay respect, and he doesn't do either of them. He doesn't give the servile praise of a kind of psychophant, but he also doesn't give the angry defiance of a revolutionary. It's, it's something even more frustrating than that. It's kind of like, huh, yeah, Caesar, you can throw his coins to him if you'd like them. This isn't, though, because Christ is a religious figure and not a political one. That, those categories don't really make sense here. But it's because his politics is of a whole other order. He doesn't just say to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God the things of God. Caesar has his coin with his image on it, and God has his coin with his, with his image on it. The book of Genesis tells us that in the beginning, when God made the heavens and the earth, on the sixth day, he said, let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth. The church's earliest interpreters of this, of these words from Jesus in Matthew 22, 
understood the rendering that we owe to God to be the rendering of this image, of the image, of the image that we're told about in Genesis, the image that we ourselves are. So while Caesar may get a chunk of metal, God is to receive our whole lives. Caesar's rule is absolutely dwarfed in light of God's rule. Caesar's ambitions are seen finally not to be too exalted, but to be too meager, too small. My favorite Dominican, if you have favorite Dominicans, this guy should be one of them, Herbert McCabe, he called this Coke and hot dogs kind of politics. For him, Coke and hot dogs didn't count as a real meal. And he said, this isn't really what politics is about. Rome's Pax Romana, the peace they thought they were bringing to the world, at best it provided an elite minority the opportunity to enjoy some wealth, some honor, and some high culture. Its pursuit of human flourishing could not get beyond this minimal level of peace, which is basically little more than keeping people from killing one another. And it didn't even do a very good job at that, saying it had to kill so many people to pull it off. Now, if men and women are simply mortal creatures whose best bet is to eke out a bit of pleasure before death, if we really are just locked up in this world without any reference or relationship to anything beyond the visible material forces around us, then Caesar's ambitions may actually be the pinnacle of human achievement. That may actually be the best thing we can do is to, to focus all our attention on trying to get meals on the table and to focus on politics all the way down. As good modern people now, we know we should extend Caesar's goal of, of wealth and honor and high culture to everyone. So that's how we best Caesar is, look, we can get this for everybody. But if humans are more than this, if they're more than just mortal creatures whose goal is to get as much pleasure before they die, if we really are creatures made by God, stamped with his image, destined for return to him, and for fellowship with him, then these ambitions are far too small. It's not that they're not important, but they're not important enough. For Christ, death itself is a political problem. The corruption of the human heart and the mortality of the flesh are political problems. If politics' goal is to provide for some amount of human flourishing, for some amount of fellowship and friendship between people, to provide a context for that, then the fact that every few years we lose those we care about the most, the fact that we rip our relationships up by our own sin and brokenness should be recognized as a real problem for us. It keeps us from what we were made for. So there's a sense in which Christianity is revolutionary and that it wants to totally transform things, but it wants to transform them in a way that most political revolutionaries can't even imagine. It wants a revolution of the flesh itself. This revolution will probably seem irrelevant to real politics, but I suppose the, the response of the apostles would be to say that there's nothing more real than the politics of God's kingdom. God's reign reaches beyond humanity to all of creation itself. That's what we just sang in our psalm. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he's coming. For he's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is a cosmic vision. This is a vision that involves all of creation. 
Now you can call this opium for the masses if you want, but it's only opium if it's not true. This is only a distraction from the real business of politics if politics is locked up in that imminent frame of merely restraining violence and holding off death for a few years. But the church's witness to the divine image and to that image's restoration and resurrection in the true image, which is Jesus Christ, it overturns any claims of human government to absolute allegiance or finality. These governments may be made use of, like Cyrus was in Isaiah's prophecy that we read, but ultimately they will have to give way to the visible rule of, of God when Christ comes again. Now what this means for us, in the meantime, has posed a great challenge to Christians throughout the ages. This has been a difficult challenge for the church to figure out what does it mean for us to be a people who are awaiting God's kingdom to come in all of its fullness, but in the meantime are involved in real political communities where decisions have to be made? I think we'll get some help from St. Paul here, but of course there's always more to be said. And this will be something ultimately that for this community we'll have to figure out together. St. Paul commends the Thessalonians for the report about them. The report says how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now there are two acts here that, that Paul describes the Thessalonians doing and I think they're both instructive for us. First, he says they turned from idols to the living God. Second, they waited for Jesus' return, or, were, or they were waiting for Jesus' return. So turning and waiting. Whatever political presence Christians are to have, it must be colored by this turning and this waiting. So first, regarding the turning. Movement away from idols to the living God. So idols, at their heart, are falsehoods. They're not real things. They're lies. They organize our thinking and our feeling around a vision of the world, a vision of other people, a vision of ourselves that isn't true, all the while demanding sacrifice from us, demanding that we stake ourselves on them. The, the cool thing about idols is we think we can manage them. They're a lot easier to deal with than the actual God. But the trouble is they end up leaving us with misery. We think we can handle them and then they backfire. Now, the Christian who has been baptized has died to his or her allegiance to those old idols, to their worship of those idols, and has now been raised to be confronted with the true and living God himself. This means the church must be a people fundamentally of the truth. St. John tells us we have the spirit of truth within us. So we must be a people absolutely committed to rejecting any of the false comforts that the illusions and deceptions of the world provide for us, no matter how consoling they may be. That's the tough thing, is we like the lies most of the time because they console us somehow. I don't think I need to tell you that it would be a profound act, it is a profound act, to be committed to the truth in the midst of a political context that is dominated by empty spectacles and a bunch of contrived and fabricated images. We have this flurry of images that go by us and they distract us from the things that are really going on, from the underlying evils and failures. Stanley Hauerwas, who for the last 
three, four decades has been a feisty Texan for all of us. And he's, he's thought more about political life for Christians probably anybody else. And when he was asked, what is, it that the, it, what is the job of the church in the world today regarding political matters, his response was simple. It's just a few words. He said, to tell the truth. That's what Christians are to be up to. Now, there's probably nothing more challenging than that, but also nothing more needed. What this will look like is the church should be a group of people that are, in uh, Karl Barth's terms, an unreliable ally to the government. We're unreliable because we're always pointing out the things that nobody wants to talk about. We're concerned about the groups that people haven't been thinking about. We're aware of what's going on in the world, and we're comfortable asking those questions. But we're allies because we're actually concerned about the common good. We really are, but we're, we, don't have our, we don't have our ego wrapped up in it in a way that we can't confront the real problems around us. The fact that we are a people justified by grace through faith, not by our own strength, means that we can actually confront our weaknesses. We can confront our failures. So turning from idols to the living God means we must be a people of truth. But alongside this turning, there's also a waiting, the waiting for Christ's return. Now, waiting is not a passive idleness here. It's not sitting on your hands because the world's going to burn anyway, so it doesn't, all, it doesn't really matter anyways. Waiting is an active thing. It's an activity. It's an anticipation. There should be nothing more active than the church's waiting. It's an overflowing with joyful and earnest expectation, witnessing to what is about to come, witnessing to and announcing the coming of the Lord. I think the church witnesses to this in basically two ways. Our waiting will take at least two forms. First, in our worship here. As we gather around the table, we are showing an image of things to come. We're participating in advance in that coming kingdom now. Through the Eucharist and through our gathering around the word, we are an image to the world of what, of what our destiny is. So we show this waiting by our worship now. But we also show it through the love of our neighbors, through acts of justice and mercy. The greater politics of God's kingdom does not equal quietism in the present day. Just because the world around us is filled with lots of things that may seem to be not as important as the resurrection, doesn't mean that they're not important at all. It's precisely by the way that we care about those things that we reveal the importance of the resurrection and the fact that God really does care about human life. The resurrection is precisely about restoring everyday human life to its glory and richness. So we witness to that not by ignoring the world around us, but by engaging it in a way that's not filled with anxiety, but that's filled with hope, knowing that the things that we are pursuing now really will, they really will be delivered to us by God. But not because we think we can make it happen. Not because we think if we could just muster all our strength together, we could make the world turn out right. No, it will require the resurrection for that. And so we try to make as much commotion about it now as we can to get people fixed with their eyes on that. Now, in this group, it's probably not a very controversial thing to say all of that. I'd imagine most of us are pretty convinced that, yeah, the resurrection is what's really most important. I don't think uh, we're a group that's probably overstaked the importance of political life here. 
We haven't had to. My sense is that most of us, if you're anything like me, are fairly cynical and jaded about the whole government thing right now and annoyed by the spectacle of political posturing and virtue signaling that we see online, on social media, all the time. So most of us, I think, are at least tempted toward a kind of detachment. And I get this, I share the same unease. But my plea for us as a church is that we do not let the world around us dictate the terms of our action. That, that we would be able to, by fixing our eyes and our ears on Christ, receive some measure of his lordly freedom, of that freedom not being prepackaged into the world's own vision, but able to de reach deep into the source of God's own purposes and to live into that. That we would serve the world and witness to the gospel without anxiety, without concern for spectacle, but in unassuming, single-hearted devotion to God's, to, to God's commandments and with deep trust and joy over what it is that he is going to do for us. This is what it means to give to God what is God's, to offer ourselves up in this way. And like I said, the, what it's going to look like for us as a Christian people to engage politically is not something that Christ doesn't give us an answer here. He frames it for us, but he doesn't give us an answer. That's going to be something that we as a community are going to have to, to wrestle with together and to think about. Politics is deeply contextual, and so we're going to have to contextually wrestle with these sorts of things. But all the while, it must be done in the context of trusting God to, that he really will come again and redeem the world. I want to pray. I, we don't normally do this, but I want to just offer a quick prayer for us. God, we ask that you would give us the freedom of Christ to be a people determined by you and not by any of the, the games of the world, but that we would devote ourselves to you, that without fanfare we would commit ourselves to protecting those that are vulnerable, for caring for the poor, um, and for proclaiming and rejoicing in your coming kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.